0: To Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another webinar edition of Rhea Wong Consulting. Today, we are talking with my friend and guest, Diane Morales, who is running for mayor of New York City. Whoa, what? Welcome, Diane.
1: Thanks, Rhea. It's great to be here with you.
0: So the last time we spoke, Diane, you had a, were a CEO of a nonprofit, and that was probably a, about a year ago. Now you are the only female candidate running for the mayor of New York against some very seasoned politicians. So what inspired you? What happened from
1: point A to point B? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, um, I am no longer the only female candidate. However, I was the first. And I am also the first Latina to run for mayor of New York City. So, you know, I, I never really aspired to political office. I, I spent my entire career working in the community and, and helping low income communities of color navigate the systems that really weren't created for them so that they could access academic and, and economic opportunity. I, I've always worked sort of shoulder to shoulder in the community and with the community. About 10 years ago, someone told me that I, you know, just declared that I was going to be the first Latina mayor of New York City. And I totally laughed it off and dismissed it. But suddenly other people started telling me the same thing. It really wasn't until after the 2016 election when I even started to think about how else could I use my skills and experience to make a difference. And, and then in, in 20, at the end of 2019, when we started to see this surge of women running and being elected into office... That was when I first started to even allow myself to think about what it could look like. And I think the more that I opened myself up to it, the more I realized that my own experience as a black Boricua, first generation college graduate, single mom, puts me in a position that I actually have more in common with the average New Yorker than most politicians. Um, and that my professional experience in creating innovative strategies to help marginalized communities overcome these barriers and challenges is, I think, exactly the kind of skills that we need to work toward creating long-term change in New York City and in people's lives. You know, I, I, I guess I believe it's really time for us to redefine who's qualified to represent and to lead us, what they look like and what kind of experience we value Um, And so at that point, it's like, why not? And and why not me? I love that. And you know what I really appreciate about
0: that is I think women so often hold themselves back because they're like, oh, I'm not qualified or I I feel like an imposter. So I am, you know, kudos to you for stepping into that. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit in more depth about how your experience as a nonprofit leader and as an educator has really played into your vision for New York.
1: First thing that I would say about that is, I th- that I think that my my tenure as an executive, managing multi million dollar budgets, supervising hundreds of staff, partnering with businesses and other stakeholders in the city, really um, give me a clear sense of what it takes to successfully oversee a complex organization like New York City with lots of moving parts. I, I think you know I've been equipped with the experience of having to align different departments and different interests so that they're working in concert and sharing information and you know, improving performance, increasing efficiencies, working towards a, a shared vision and a common goal. I also think that I, you know, I have a clear understanding of what it takes to create change. The idea that it's just not enough to make decisions at the top and expect that everybody's going to execute on them just because it really takes an investment to make sure that everyone in the organization feels valued, that their experience and expertise are factored in, that they're part of sort of co-creating a vision and that they feel good about the work that they do and and like they're doing a good job, right? I I think that if leadership spends time investing and bringing along all of the members of the team, are much more likely to be successful. Um, I, I think that fi- the last thing I would say about this is that my perspective as an educator and a social worker are also critical to the vision and what I see as possible for New York City. I, I understand the importance of that work specifically in helping our most vulnerable, vulnerable and marginalized communities to overcome the inherent inequities and disparities that they, you know, that they confront by virtue of race, gender, and, and class. I think that I understand that the, the role that those systems can play in perpetuating those challenges. Um, so I see where we need to make the changes in order to address the underlying causes of those burdens.
0: Yeah, and I would say,
1: <laughs> I think
0: the leadership, uh, the political leadership in the city has been far too insider. And so you see these like career politicians who all think the same and they're all cut from the same cloth. So why not someone from the outside who can really see things differently?
1: Yeah, I mean, because I, one of the things I think that this current crisis has made crystal clear is that um, the old systems and the old paths have led to this, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a real sort of moment in time and window here where we can make a conscious decision to leave those things behind and to create things in a new and different way that um, you sort of distribute opportunity and and access in a whole different kind of way.
0: Yeah, I saw this really great quote from Brene Brown yesterday and I'm gonna butcher it but essentially like to go back to the old way doesn't make sense because the old way upheld, you know, white supremacy and inequality and da da da. So can we use this opportunity to, to stitch a new cloth?
1: Yeah, I, I there's some um, there's another quote also um, by Arundhati Roy. Oh, I um, love Arundhati Roy. Right?
0: Right? She's like my personal hero. The God of small things has changed my life. Anyway,
1: please continue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so she just wrote something um, called the pandemic is a portal, right? Oh. And, and um, in it, she talks about um, um, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. Mm-hmm. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly, with little baggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight. Yes. Kudos to that.
0: Yes, all the things. You, Arundhati Roy, all of the women <laughs> of color. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm going to change over to a policy question, and I want to um, just invite folks on the call. I'm going to open it up for Q&A in a couple of minutes, so if you have any questions, feel free to get your thinking caps on. Diane, you and I know each other because I we are both in the education space, and so education is certainly near and dear to my heart as it is to yours. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about your perspective about reopening schools uh, and you know can we expect that's going to happen in the fall, and how do we do so safely?
1: um so I think I'm going to tip my hand a little bit because um, this is definitely one of the policy sort of ideas that we're we're putting together and um, getting ready to go public with. Um, I really think that you know I don't think first of all, I don't think that we're going to be ready um, in September to to return to school as we know it. That being said, I also, and, and connecting to this, you know, to the quote that I just read from from Roy about sort of the opportunity to sort of leave some of our old baggage behind. I think this is this is a, a window for us to really reimagine schools. And so I think that, you know, if we talk about, if we maintain the idea of social distancing, that's going to be necessary. I believe, I don't think we're going to resolve the testing and and tracing issues in the next few months and and do it in a robust and sort of um, thorough enough way to just feel safely, you know, like we can go back to the, the way things were. So I think that there's a way for us to leverage the human services, nonprofit sector, their expertise Um, and their physical space resources to really sort of redistribute and reallocate our student population. You know, I'm thinking about sort of the idea of deputizing these organizations to provide education services and supports to our kids, right? So we've got the community school model that we can build on where nonprofits have been partnered with education and and schools, if we did an inventory of space that's available in the nonprofit sector, of staffing that's available in the nonprofit sector that has um, education backgrounds and sort of redistributed our our student body along sort of those lines, and also created what I'm thinking about as sort of a, and don't quote me on this because it's just a label for now, like an education core where we brought in um, people who are interested in becoming educators, where we partnered with CUNY to think differently about how we train educators, where we partnered with the UFT to support that, right? I think that this this is about sort of um, increasing uh, the teacher pool and the quality, you know, um, and the supports that the teacher pool has access to. I also think that the nonprofit sector has a lot of experience in this. The the Department of Youth and Community Development several years ago actually um, copied an idea that I created as the CEO of Phipps Neighborhoods when I developed um, a model, an after-school model, with education specialists that were actually educators, previous teachers, you know, school heads... Um, Who were supporting our after-school programs and providing sort of rigorous and robust education components. Uh, That model was scaled. And so all of the Sonic programs and the Compass programs from the city require somebody to have an education specialist. We could build on that. We could ramp that up. We could also think differently about the school year, right? This nine-month September to June. Um, There are other right, there are other places who do it differently. We can think about the school day differently. So much can be done differently. Um, I think to provide the opportunity for our kids to get back to school, to school, right? Again, throwing out sort of the traditional model for parents to sort of have that, right? Because I I just don't think right now the the virtual education is is really working. Um, It's Mm -hmm. certainly not working um, in the same way for everybody. So those are sort of some of the threads of of what I see as possible. It would mean having to start yesterday in terms of Mm -hmm. planning for this and preparing for this. Um, but I do see it as being possible.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think there's all sorts of new interesting possibilities as well. For example, I think that there's going to be a lot more available space at co-working spaces
1: and storefronts, so that's an interesting idea. Absolutely, commercial spaces, absolutely. I think that kind of thing, um, we have to be really creative about how we approach this, and we have to, I think, think about how we involve as many sort of different sectors and stakeholders in the community in making these um, innovative experiments successful.
0: So I'm gonna switch now to another question that I know is on your mind and and certainly on mine, which is the question of um, racial equity and equality. You know, when we think most recently of de Blasio and how communities of color have been disproportionately, Arrested for social distancing or violating social distancing norms, Um, you know, stop and frisk obviously is another example Clearly problematic, you know, the other piece that I'm thinking about personally is you joined us in our webinar last week Which is about the rise of anti-Asian sentiment in the wake of COVID and a lot of the examples of Violence against Asians have been committed by other folks of color So I'm just wondering like how are you thinking about being a mayor for all New Yorkers?
1: That's a great question, Um, and I want to make clear that, like, we don't have enough time on this webinar to to sort of get into the the complexity of of what that would entail in terms of addressing these sort of inherent um, issues in our system, but I do think that there's a couple of things worth noting um, in this, And, and one is, you know, this is where I think education, both in schools and in the community, can play a really critical role in creating change um the reality of it is that the anti-blackness sentiment which is you know grounded in white supremacy and and is the root of, of the racialization of minorities in this country has really fed into the the narrative around these conflicts, right this sort of black versus asian and and that whole idea of you know the whole myth of scarcity that pits one minority group against another because you know of some sort of made up notion that there isn't enough to go around right that grounds people in fear Which in in turn turns into these racist sort of um, behaviors, Um, but the the reality of it is that racism against any sort of racial minority just reinforces the current structures of white supremacy and the marginalization of of other minorities. So, you know, I I think I think there's a real critical role for education to play in that. I also think that um, accountability and and sort of um, you know we we are not holding our police department accountable in the way that they need to be held accountable. The the crisis and and our federal administration, I can't even say the name, um, has just further fed into those fears and stoked those fears. And it is a huge problem. I I don't see um, the leadership of New York City really taking that on and confronting that directly. Um, And until we do that, we're just going to be tinkering around the edges, right? I mean, we've seen all of these incidents of you know violence against um people in the Asian community, you know, all of these awful, awful insults and threats because of the the whole idea that they' brought um, the, the the virus into the city um, as well as what you you know you referenced in terms of the disproportionate um enforcing of social distancing rules in our communities. the police department needs to be held accountable for that, and that that means more than a slap on the wrist it's just it's unacceptable, and there have to be serious consequences for those behaviors yeah i mean it's obviously a much deeper question but but i
0: i hear you and i agree with you which is how do we really attack the the root of the issue around white supremacist culture and stop tinkering around the edges like in you know what i know about you diane is like you're you are fearless and stepping into the fire (laughs) (laughs) i mean look at you're you're running for mayor um i want to invite folks on the call if you have questions feel free to throw it into the chat and i can call on you as we wind up this q a with diane between me and diane um okay so diane i'm just going to ask like the the everyday woman question which is like all right diane why would i vote for you i mean there are all these other politicians running with a lot more experience in government and city government
1: and you know why, why would you get my vote excellent question ria um so yeah i mean yeah there are there are more experienced politicians running for sure you know these people are um and you know, no, no offense, they're, but they're people that have spent a large part of their lives and their careers working in or for the government, calculating their sort of career ladder and their next government position. Um, you know, exchanging political favors in, in return for support from people who are going to help elevate them. And, and but there isn't another candidate in the race uh, that I know of that provides the kind of combined personal and professional experience that I do. And and by that I mean I have lived Um, many of the challenges that the average New Yorker experiences. I've challenged the Department of Education to provide the necessary services to my children who struggled with learning differences. So I understand the frustrations of dealing with that system. I have, you know, struggled with trying to navigate and access mental health supports for my daughter when she was um, struggling with issues. I have fought with the chief of police when I witnessed via FaceTime, my son being harassed and racially profiled by a police officer with a hand on his holster, right? So, you know, I, I've, done, I've lived those things, which I think are, are experiences that so many New Yorkers have. And the flip side of that is on a professional front, I have helped communities navigate and overcome those kinds of things, right? So there is something that I believe um, exists at the intersection of those experiences that positions me uniquely To be able to not just represent New Yorkers, but also to problem solve and to tackle these challenges, as you said, head on in a fearless way that is unencumbered by owing anybody any kind of favors or uh, you know, uh, I don't have those kinds of relationships or those restraints. So I have nothing to hold me back. And so I think, you know, I think if people really want change and really want to see something different happen in New York City. Then I think they should um, take a look at my campaign and follow along. All
0: right. So last question before I open it up to the audience, uh, you know, I know that you are running a really different type of campaign. It's grassroots. It's being funded by individuals, you know, small dollar donations. Tell me a little bit about what you need in order to get to the the next level.
1: New York City has created a campaign finance program that actually is intended to make it a little easier for folks like me uh, to enter you know, campaigns, to run campaigns, Um, they've uh, the the, there are two matching programs and the one that I'm participating in provides an eight to one match for donations between $10 and $250 from every New York City resident. And so that's a, you know, that's an incentive and it it makes it a little bit easier. The flip side of that is, um, and you know, this is, these are sort of the, the, the hills that we still have to climb, um, is that we have to, we have to meet two thresholds. One is a thousand New York City residents donating to the campaign. A minimum of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars raised from that thousand from that pool of one thousand donors. So um, we are right now in a sort of heavy push to try to meet both of those thresholds. Um, we just we are about to wrap up tomorrow, actually a 10 by 10 by 10 campaign, where we're asking anybody who's even remotely interested to consider getting 10 of their friends to donate $10. It was over a 10 day period and tomorrow is the 10th day. Um, So that is, you know, that's one of the things that we're doing right now. And, you know, we're just constantly fundraising and I'd like to kind of um, check those boxes so that I can pivot and focus on what really matters, which is, you know, the policy side and planning for the kind of vision and changes that, um, that we'd like to see. So right now, you know the, that kind of support um, is gonna make a big difference and would be greatly appreciated. All right, y'all,
0: so you heard it here. So tell your friends, donate to the cause if you want someone like Diane Morales on the ticket. Um, so I have some really excellent
2: questions coming in. The first is from- Sure, um, so I read an article this morning that talked about de Blasio's executive budget proposal Mm -hmm. Um, And the cuts that he has proposed to education that total, the number that I found was $641.8 million. And along with that, only a $23.8 million cut to the New York City Police Force. And from what I'm seeing, this doesn't align with your plan for a more equitable New York City. Um, So I'm kind of wondering what the approximate pie chart of your budget would look like.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I I can't give you sort of um, specific numbers right now. We're actually in the process of um, working with a couple of economists to to do those calculations. My answer, sort of the headline for my response is three words, divest and reinvest. Um, I would be really, really, um, focused on divesting those additional resources from the New York. We don't need more police officers. We don't need, um, you know, the, 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 kind of force that is being, um, identified to go into the MTA. What we need are resources for the community so that people are safe, um, so that people are healthy, um, and so that they have housing, right? And so I would really look to, um, kind of reverse, not exactly necessarily, um, but we, we really need to invest in the things that are, are most important. And, and that connects back to sort of my original, I open, my, part of my opening statement about using this moment in time to reassess what's important to us and creating a budget that reflects our values, that in fact elevates and supports those people who right now are being so disproportionately impacted by the crisis that we despite that we have deemed the most essential of our workers right um there is a there is a, an inherent tension in the fact that uh, our inherent our, our essential workers are like 79 percent people of color um and are reflect about 63 percent of the mortality rates um despite the fact that they're only like 25 percent of the overall workforce in new york city i think that the disproportionality of those numbers reflects something really problematic and um, that we need to, moving forward, create a plan that centers those people, because I think that those folks are what make it possible for the rest of us to survive. And um, if we, we in fact, prioritize those individuals, the collective will benefit. Question coming in from (laughs) Russell.
3: I've heard referenced recently the upcoming decade of mental health. And Diane, I was wondering kind of what you're thinking about incorporating broadly improved access to mental health services, and also to kind of normalizing the conversation about the effects that trauma plays, both sort of trauma coming out of the current moment, but also recognizing a kind of a long-standing cross generational um, trauma, inherited trauma.
1: Yeah, so I will say um, as the mom of a daughter, who um, has struggled with mental health challenges for a large part of the last six years. Um, I, I, first of all, I have firsthand experience with the challenges in our mental health system and the supports that are available to everyone, specifically through the lens of adolescence. Um, you know, at the time that my daughter was struggling with these issues, I think there were about 14, listen closely, there are about 14 adolescent mental health beds available in all of New York City. So there is a there is a scarcity of resources, which is the first thing. Despite the the current administration's um, investment in um, in mental health services, I don't think that those that those dollars were invested in the or allocated in the right ways. Um, I think we need to increase the pool. Um, of providers that are available. There's a variety of different ways that we can do that through partnerships with with the CUNY system, through through partnerships with, you know, larger sort of mental health institutions. I also think we need to, to your point, normalize the narrative around um, mental health challenges and trauma. Everyone has some sort of issue, right, that they could benefit from um, being addressed or or being able to sort of Talk about or, or address in a, in a more public way. And so we need to, I, I think we really need to integrate that perspective and that lens into our schools in a whole different kind of way, into our workplaces in a whole different kind of way, and into sort of our cultural narrative in a way that, that destigmatizes um, mental health challenges, that creates the space for um, healthy dis- discourse around it, and that also provides the treatment. A lot, the reality of it is that a large percentage of mental health issues actually are not sort of on the most extreme part of the spectrum, right? If you think about it that way. Um, so, so, we need to create a more robust system from one end to the other while increasing um, the accesses, sort the, of the triage, if you will, the front end interventions, um, so that we can sort of decrease the, the spigot on the back end, if that makes sense. And I and I think that there's there's a way to do that that actually makes it m- much more uh, you know the, the, I can't even begin to describe the the challenges that we faced both in terms of like just waiting you know in in the hallways of emergency rooms for for days on end, and also just the conversations or the difficulty in having conversations with education professionals, if you will, as to what was happening, right? All of these systems need to be, I think, much more closely uh, knit together so that we can have a much more comprehensive and holistic approach. I'm sorry, I could go on and on about this, but um, I I just, I think it's a multi-pronged strategy and approach that weaves this into the public discourse and also ramps up the professional supports that are available to everybody.
0: A really excellent question coming in from Sabrina. Um,
4: First of all, Diane, I want to say thank you for joining us. This has been really informative, and I, getting to know you, feel that you share a lot of my values, so thank you. Recently, I have been looking back to history to try and understand the city a little bit better. I've been living here for a few years, and I'm reading Fear City, which, um, as I'm sure you know, is about the 1970s fiscal crisis and how um, the imperative to... Uh, rescue the city from bankruptcy, sort of changed the soul, the heart and soul of the city. The city gentrified much further than it ever had before. And now there's like a Dwayne Reed and a Chase Bank on every corner where there were mom and pop shops. But I want to ask you if you could talk a little bit about sort of the challenging time ahead for the local economy. I feel like even like yeah. in this sort of gentrified city where it's sort of like a tourist- it's the tourist destination. It's very sanitized. There's a lot of like, you know, theater, which is a great thing. There are a lot of restaurants, which is which is a great thing. But um, I feel like a lot of the assumptions that we have um, that keep revenue coming in and that keep the city going, a lot of those things are going away. Restaurants are struggling. The experiential event market um, is obviously just gone right now or temporarily on pause. So what are you gonna to do to sort of boost the economy in the future if we're still struggling with the after effects of the pandemic? So I'm
1: gonna to respond to that in a couple of sort of different ways. Um, one is sort of a, a more philosophical um, response. And that, and that is that you know, there's, a, there's the need for us to move away from this sort of individual, individual liberties, individualism um, mentality and move more towards what I believe is, is you know, like a communitarian approach and a collective approach. And the idea that, you know, what what has right now some people protesting so that they, that they get their, their their individual liberties back and the ability to go back to work is actually really code for, I don't want to go back to work. I want people that serve me to go back to work so that um, I can get my services, right? And And I think we all know who that refers to. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a philosoph- philosophical framing or ideological framing, I think, of, of recovery that that needs to be shifted in terms of how we approach this. Um, I also think that while, yes, there's going to be um, a, a significant impact on the economy and, and revenue, um, that also is not um, reflected proportionately across the board. And so I would be, I, I am very interested in looking at um, ways that there there can be more of a shared sort of sacrifice, if you will. Um, and I think it's important in the messaging around that to bring across sort of cross sector table of cross sector stakeholders together who understand their the need and their responsibility at this point in time in in helping to sort of elevate the city as well as. Um, the longer-term potential for those people who put some skin in the game on the front end. um, What I would be interested in looking at and what I would be interested in doing on on, on the front end be to look at the revenues that we do have, the things that the mayor does have control over, and really, really looking to, as I said before, create a budget that reflects our values That's not to say that, um, you know, it's not panacea, I'm not sort of suggesting that there aren't going to be difficult times ahead, but I do think that there is a way for us to prioritize the people that have been sort of impacted the most to create cross-sector partnerships that that sort of share responsibility around elevating those, those groups in those communities, whether we're talking about, you know, I think there's a way to bring small businesses together with with businesses with real estate interests um, to sort of agree make a, a new sort of new social contract that agrees to sharing the pain proportionately um, and investing in the front end so that we can all do better in the long end in the, in the long run
0: yeah I mean just to uh, follow up on that question, Diane. I mean, as you know, my husband is also in hospitality and I think that the hospitality and the restaurant sector has been hit particularly hard. And so what makes New York great is that there aren't so many restaurants and, and bars and, and all these sorts of things. And what's terrible about it is that the competition makes it such that it's an unsustainable business model, but also that it's been hit particularly hard by the closures and COVID. Question coming in from
5: Carlos. Yes. Hi, Ria. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Um, uh, Diane, first of all, I just want to say this is very exciting. As a Latinx um, person, I, it's, it's very uh, inspiring that you are considering uh, running for mayor. Um, but my question is, what are your ideas for supporting families slash individuals who have been barred from supports and legislation that aims to provide relief from the effects of COVID-19. An immediate example is the stimulus check. We have many undocumented folks and mixed status families who have been, who don't have access to that. And like, it doesn't look very promising. Um, Some of the proposed legislation coming from the governor, uh, which requires documentation for potential requesting rent freezing. freezing. Um, You would have to provide like evidence that you have been There we go. Exactly. And not many people are going to be, are going to have that privilege.
1: So, so the first thing I'll say is that um, I think it's, it's absolutely imperative for us to provide protections to everyone, Um, whether they be undocumented immigrants, um, whether they be um, people who haven't had the benefit of being on, on payroll. I I think, um, you know, that the sort of Core premise of of the idea of a new social contract is based on the notion of valuing and and supporting and elevating all of those folks who, again, have made it possible for us to sort of um, survive through this period of time. Um, I, I have been uh, a, a supporter of the the cancel rent movement. Um, I, I think that that cannot be done in isolation, though. I think we need to look at the you know just to take that example for a second. Um, We need to look at the homeowners, right? I'm not talking about, you know, landlords that own tons of buildings or luxury buildings. I'm talking about the small, you know, mom and pop, you know, two family, three family homeowners, and we need to provide them with some sort of mortgage relief as well. Because, you know, it, it it doesn't help to provide, to pass on the burden from renters to those um, you know smaller homeowners who then run the risk of of losing their own homes. Um, so those things I think need to be coupled. But we need to recognize the the reality that there are you know more renters in New York City than than owners, um, and we need to provide protections for those people. So we need to, you know we we also need to provide you know in terms of the the aid and the relief that's not being available uh, being made available to to folks. We need to to find a way again to prioritize and and exercise our values in how we allocate our resources so i would i would advocate strongly and and you know in uh, the position as mayor would would prioritize finding access to resources for those those folks in the community.
0: Diana, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your positions on um, undocumented folks and DACA, DACA students, because I think, you know, certainly this is an issue near and dear to my heart, having worked with a number of of young people who um, were in this position and, and had issues when applying to college, for example, and getting financial aid. So I'm can you say a little bit more about your, your policy position on that?
1: Well, um, I believe that uh, the undocumented folks in this country are actually um, helping to drive so much of our economy, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. And so, you know, I think that I think we should, we need to be looking at creating pathways, making things easier for them, not harder. Um, I, I think that, the, you know, the disproportionate, you know, that the differences in policies that we have um, implemented towards um, you know, white immigrant, white European um, immigrants versus um, immigrants coming up from the, from the South are... are you, know, you can't deny those, those differences. And, and we've got to recognize and value the contributions that those communities all make towards um, making it possible for the country to, to run. And so um, I would be looking towards ways to protect to To help sort of create, you know, pathways to entry, um, and definitely to support our DACA students. I mean, it's it's that is is somewhat you know one of the most egregious things that we've ever done. I think in, in, in terms of, of not pr- protecting and, and supporting young people who you know for many of whom, never lived in whatever country we're ascribing. To them um, and for whom the United States is home.
2: Um, I have another question. If Please. second questions are allowed, yes, absolutely. Please, Emily. <laughs> so my question is: you you touched on it a little when you were talking about um, rent freeze and mortgage relief, um, but I'm I'm wondering on a on a grander non COVID specific scale, what your sort of ideas for your policy ideas for regulation around renters and landlords are specifically uh, as the, my mom is a a small private landlord, you know, she owns a three family house and she rents two of the units. Um, And there's been a lot of legislation (laughs) circling lately about kind of the regulations that would be on her, you know, single home that she owns and lives in, even though she has two rental units. So uh, kind of focusing on what protections for small private landlords would look like, as opposed to, you know, separating that out from giant conglomerates that own, you know, millions of units throughout the city.
1: Yeah. Emily, can you say a little bit more about um, what some of those regulations are that you're referencing that are, have been sort of evictions for
2: you know solely based on cause not being able to um just take back a a a property that you own um without having a like you can't like now if you want you can just evict a tenant because you want to you know have your your unit back your apartment back that you own um but there's been a lot of legislation circling about um evictions only for cause Got deeming it. that small rental units, you know, have to, you know, must take section eight, different things like that, that, you know, would disproportionately impact landlords that don't own rental units for profit.
1: Sure, sure. Oh, I totally get it. Um, I I mean, I, I, those are things that I would be opposed to, right? Um, but I think there needs to be a balance. And I, I say this as a homeowner, um, I have one rental unit. Um, I think there needs to be a balance between my ability to, um, I mean, it's my home. I want to be able to claim that space if I want it. Um, I also want to be able to provide the tenant with the appropriate amount of notice, um, and the time to do the search and to find it, you know, I don't, I don't think a 30-day notice is enough. Um, I, I, think that that's not, not fair, particularly in the, in the rental, in the housing market in New York City. But I do think that I should be able to exercise my right um, as a homeowner, particularly. I, th- I you know, I want to make make sure it's clear that I think there's a difference um, in small homeowners homeownership versus with large real estate, you know, owners and luxury d- developers that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think there's a balance, right? There's a balance that we we have to walk a line that we'd have to walk that I think is possible to walk that both protects the homeowner's rights while providing some sort of safeguards for the tenant so that they're not you know they're not just like ruthlessly evicted and, and end up on the street.
2: Great, great. Thank you so much. That helps a lot. Um, basically the reason I'm asking is because I'm trying to to get my mom on your side. <laughs> I know, but that's one of gotcha. her, her big gotcha. I'm happy, I'm happy to, talk to, to talk to your mom if she'd like <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, hey,
3: it's Russell. I have another yeah. question. If Please go
0: ahead, Russell. Time. I think we have one time for one last question. So this will be the last one
3: from Russell. Great. So Diane, you know, I imagine you've been watching the um the Blasio Cuomo dynamics over the past couple of years. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, what have you said to yourself, oh my gosh, you know, as mayor, I could do this so much better. I could I could collaborate with state leadership in in so much more productive ways. Like what what's some of your thinking around that?
1: yeah yeah I mean, I have to admit, um I have totally had that thought, right. I have totally had the thought that despite my um issues with some of the decisions that Cuomo has made, I don't you know by any means agree with a lot of the decisions that he's made. um I do feel like uh there is a way to collaborate and and work with people who are you know not a hundred percent aligned with you um and I think. I think that there's been a, a male ego thing dynamic here that has really, really not served us well. I, I, I think that there's been something, you know, as evidenced by our current mayor's um, presidential run. There's been sort of an eye side, sort of current role. Um, and for me, the reality of it is, I, I'm not looking to become sort of a next sort of career politician, right? This is not something, oh, if I become mayor, then, you know, what else am I gonna do? Um, this is sort of the the thing for me. And so there'd be a, a sort of, I feel like a singular focus on being able to create meaningful change in New York City that positions us to really be a model for the country and maybe the world um, as the greatest city, right? You know, we should be, um, we should live up to the rhetoric and the the sort of aspirations of New York City. Um, So that's one thing is being really focused on that. I think the other thing is just, um, I I do feel like I have a lot of experience navigating and navigating successfully um, relationships and partnerships with people who I don't see eye to eye with on everything, um, but doing it in such a way that ultimately both gets me sort of the resources or sort of progress that I need while helping your, you know, while leaving the other person feeling like they've been successful and they've gotten what they wanted. So I, I think, I, and I think that's a skill. I think that's an art. I think that's a personality thing. And and I also, you know, being able to negotiate and being able to be diplomatic and doing that while also still not compromising your values um, and and your principles and what you believe in, I think is something that um that I do particularly well. so I you know I definitely have looked at that dynamic many, many times and thought, oh, i you know i'd I'd love to sort of have a shot at that so um I you know I put my money on me
0: and I do think to your, I think the theme of this whole conversation is like how can we do things differently And I read this really interesting article about how models of female leadership is actually much more effective in this time of COVID because women tend to be much more sort of consensus-builders, relationship-builders, uh,
1: collaborators. Yes. It actually is a statistical fact that um, women in Congress have successfully passed or gotten more legislation passed than their male counterparts, um, and that, that's just statistically true. Um, And that's attributed to um, better being able to negotiate a a greater focus on sort of the collective rather than sort of individual ego issues. And and so um, there is something to be said for that. And I think it's it's being modeled or sort of demonstrated worldwide right now in the midst of this crisis. When you look at the places that have handled this better than us, they're generally being led by women.
0: Angela Merkel, we see you. The future female, y'all. So in the last minutes that we have together, Diane, and thank you so much, this has been so great and so glad that folks have been able to learn more about you and about your uh, policy platform. What are the big takeaways that p- you'd want people to know about you, uh, particularly you know, for Emily's mom? What can she say to her
1: mom that
0: yeah. is essential to know about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Um, One of the things that I tend to say, and this isn't mine by any means, but I I really believe that a rising tide lifts all boats and that the individual pursuit of happiness is inextricably linked to the collective. And so I I think if that's, you know, if there's one sort of headline about sort of me and what I stand for and what I represent and what I'd be working for, it's that, Um, Before the crisis, I was advocating for the centering of women and and communities of color as as the key to building a more inclusive New York City where everyone benefits. I I believe that this pandemic has totally highlighted the deeply entrenched disparities in our city and brought the issues of my platform to the forefront in a way that I don't think we can unsee. And also, I think there is transformative potential in this crisis. And so, you know, I, I think that we can move towards real acqui- a- access and, and, and equity. And I believe that, you know, we sh- we, it's possible for us to tip the scales on these disparities that are both institutionalized and, and structural. And so that's, you know, I just don't think that we can go back. And I, I you know, it's a, it's a mine is a rallying cry for us to not miss this moment as an opportunity to really create transformative and radical change for the city.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Diane. Folks, you. you get the word out. Diane needs the thousand donors and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars by what date again? June 30th. Okay, so put the word out there. If you want Diane Morales as your next mayor of New York City, you know what going to do? <laughs> I'm going all the way, Diane. I'm not going houseies. Okay all the way. (laughs) Diane and Gracie Manchin, thank you so much to everyone for being on the call. Thank you, Diane, for your time. Uh, I will make this available.